0: We'll hear argument this morning in Case Thirteen Three One Six Lockran versus United States. Mr. Russell,
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court: This case presents the question whether, to commit federal bank fraud, a defendant must intend to defraud a bank, or whether, as the Tenth Circuit held, it's enough that the defendant intended to defraud someone in order to obtain money the victim keeps in a bank account. Applying the Tenth Circuit's interpretation, the government has prosecuted people whose only relationship to a bank is that they tricked a third party into issuing them a perfectly valid check, which the defendant then cashed at a bank. Such a broad interpretation of the federal bank fraud statute threatens to sweep in a garden-variety state law crimes of uh, a broad uh, sweep, of the sort that this Court has refused uh, to give to federal criminal statutes absent a clear statement of congressional intent. But if, that, it's
2: the, if it's the words Congress used, obtain funds owned or controlled by financial a financial institution by means of false representation?
1: Well, the, the, the problem is there is an ambiguity in, the, in subsection 2 about to whom the false representation must be directed. Now I acknowledge that ordinarily you would uh, construe that silence uh, in favor of breadth, that a, In favor of breadth, that a false statement to anyone would do. But there are compelling reasons not to give that ambiguity, that interpretation in this case. And one is the breadth. That I mentioned. It enabled the government to bring cases like United States versus Rodriguez, where the government prosecuted a bookkeeper who filed false invoices with her employer that led the employer then to issue perfectly valid checks to people who didn't do the work.
0: Well, well but the breadth is confined. Uh, given the development of the banking system, it may not seem as significant a limitation today as in years past, but nonetheless, the definition of a financial institution is in 18 U.S.C. 20 is limited to institutions with a particular Federal nexus, Federal Deposit Insurance, Federal Home Loan Bank, Small Business Investment Act. Uh, it isn't any financial institution, but institutions in which the Federal Government has a particular interest.
1: That, that's true. Uh, but nonetheless, for precisely the reason you identified, it, it covers an awful lot of banks. And if you Not read the in stack, this
3: case. And that's where I'm having difficulty. Why is it illogical? to think that a falsehood rendered through a third party that might affect a bank, a false check, as your client was charged with, that that would be the very case Congress would have wanted covered. So
1: that's a question about, I think, whether intent to defraud a bank could be satisfied in a case like this. And I think that the answer to that is possibly it could. So the government, I think, tries to put you to a false choice between saying you either have to accept the Tenth Circuit's interpretation that sweeps in cases like United States versus Rodriguez, perfectly valid checks, that don't implicate either of the core interests in a bank fraud case, which is protecting the bank from financial harm or protecting the bank from being lied to. You either have to accept that or you have to leave unprosecutable cases like this one. But that's not — Well, how good. would that — how would that work? Would the jury have to be — Instructed
4: about the UCC and be asked to determine whether the bank or target in this case would be liable for the funds if the bank
1: had honored a forged check? So that gets there. We have two theories. We have the theory that intent to defraud a bank is required. And under that theory, the UCC doesn't matter. We also argue, though, if you don't require intent to defraud a bank, Why why would it not matter? Because under the government, it doesn't matter under the government's view or no, our, under so your one, view. Under your
4: view that there has to be an intent to defraud a bank, why would it not matter from who would
1: ultimately be liable for the for the for the money uh, for the amount of the check? Under our view, all that government has to show is that the defendant intended to deceive a bank in order to obtain property that is owned by or in the custody of a bank. So in a bank account, so a
5: traditional altered well, check I case. Think on anybody's theory, you, you have to show that. Uh, uh, that the money's funds, credits, assets, securities, or other property was owned by or under the custody or control of a financial institution. That's entity. right. So
1: doesn't either side have to prove that? That's correct. So the point of departure is to whom the false statement has to be directed. Right. But, but the jury has to be instructed that the money's coming out of the bank. That's right? correct. That's correct. And so that's — to the extent you think the UCC is implicated in that inquiry, that, that is true under either one. I don't think that it is. I think it's just going to be a question of, you know, whose money are you trying to get and is it in a bank account? Two of the
2: two of the six checks involved were paid by the Droy Bank, isn't that so?
1: That is correct. And so, but under our principal view, that the problem here is that the government, that the jury wasn't instructed that petitioner had to intend to defraud uh, a bank as opposed to target. And so it doesn't matter whether the checks were cashed or not, and it doesn't even matter under the risk-of-loss theory, because it only has to be a risk-of-loss, not an actual <coughs> loss.
3: Yeah, but, I, I think you have a
1: — you have a, a
4: credible textual argument, but you run into the problem that your interpretation makes uh, section — subsection 1,
1: surplusage. Uh, How do uh, you get around that? I, I don't know that we do, but the Tenth Circuit's interpretation doesn't either. Because, under the Tenth Circuit's interpretation, one is rendered surplusage, because any prosecution that could be brought under one could also be brought under two. If it's enough under two that you intend to defraud someone, it's surely enough that you intended to defraud a bank. Well, under the alternative, there is certainly overlap, but two it
4: reaches a much broader category, or it reaches a broader category, so it's not useless. No, that's true. And representation doesn't have to be made to the bank under two. Two covers those instances where the representation is made to somebody else. One would be limited to those, perhaps, in which the the representation is made to the bank. But under your interpretation, where two requires that the representation be made to the bank, there is no point in having two subsections. You might as well just have one.
1: Well, I have two things to say to that. One is Congress may have thought that what they were doing in two is making clear that the statute encompasses the broad range of particular kinds of property interests that are unique or, or at least common in the banking context. And in that way, it serves the same function as the second clause in the mail fraud statute upon which the statute — is Which doesn't
2: have the two subparts. But here you are essentially asking us to read the word or, one or two, to mean one including two.
1: Well, that's the same way that this Court has repeatedly read the two parallel clauses of the bank fraud statute, the only difference being, you know, the the difference in hard returns and and numerals. But I don't think — this Court
3: did after the — after or before this statute — no, this statute was passed before the — Court's interpretation of the mail fraud statute. Every court That's that right. had looked at it at the time the statute was passed had determined that there were two separate That's provisions. Right. So what, why would Congress have any reason to believe they were passing a singular <coughs> case, I, I think a what, singular charge?
1: I think what Congress would have intended is simply that when it uses the identical materially identical language and structure in two statutes that they would have the same meaning as determined by this Court. The interpretive principle that the Government relies on that identically worded statutes can mean very different things depending on the state of the circuit law at the time Congress copies the language is really untenable. And it requires a criminal defendant, for example, uh, to know what that circuit precedent was and not be able to simply rely on this Court's decisions interpreting the identical language in another statute. But it's
2: not identical because in the Bank Ford statute, Congress broke out and separately numbered one and two, and it didn't do that in the mail fraud.
1: You know, I, but I understand that, but I don't think that if Congress intended this statute to operate dramatically different from the mail fraud statute, the only change it would have made was is those sort of typographical changes. I don't think that's the way Congress conveys that kind of intent. But again, even if you think that subsection two creates an independent offense, it's susceptible of the interpretation Uh, that we give you, which avoids having to federalize the kinds of of cases that are at issue in, in United States versus Rodriguez.
6: One understanding of what led to this statute is this Court's decision in May's, which actually seems on all fours with this case, right, use of a fraudulent credit card to a merchant who then asks for money from the bank, essentially the same case as this, with a fraudulent credit card as opposed to a fraudulent check. So if we understand this statute as arising from Congress's desire to make that bank fraud, why should we rule for you here? Well, I guess I'll
1: have to just dispute the premise. I think Congress was reacting to the rule, the principle of law that Mays adopted, which made it impossible to use the wire fraud statute, the mail fraud statute, to prosecute a case even when somebody goes into a bank and cashes a counterfeit check because the then use of the mail to settle the account afterwards wasn't good enough. And that's what Congress was concerned of. In this Court's own decision in Mays, the Court noted that Congress had dealt with the specific factual problem in Mays uh, through an amendment re- — then recent amendment to the Truth in Lending Act, which prohibited. Credit card fraud, Congress added to those remedies in another section of the same statute that enacted the bank fraud statute and then dealt with the parallel uh, problem with respect to altered checks in section 513, which is also part of that same statute, which criminalizes any use of an altered check to deceive anyone without regard to whose property the defendant is intending to obtain. So when you're worried about altered check cases here, and, and we need to not just be worried about those cases, because this decision will implicate a whole host of other cases. But if you're thinking just about altered check cases, Congress dealt with altered check cases in Section 513. And that's important, because the penalties under 513 and 31 uh, — and, and the bank fraud provision are very different. It's a 30-year sentence for bank fraud and a 10-year uh, sentence for our Section 513, and more importantly — The bank fraud statute is a predicate uh, for aggravated identity theft, which imposes a mandatory two-year minimum sentence that must be served consecutive to any other sentence. And so in a petty case like this, the difference between somebody being charged for the bank fraud and being charged under 513 for a first-time offender can be the difference between zero to six months and two to two-and-a-half years. And that gives the government enormous plea bargaining leverage. So you can understand why the government wants a broad interpretation here. But it's also equally understandable that Congress would have thought that cases in which somebody is using an alter check in a way that negligently or knowingly poses some risk to a bank is warrants less punishment than when somebody directly targets the bank itself for deception in order to obtain bank property.
7: Why is that? Why would Congress have wanted to make that difference?
1: Well, because I think Congress would have — I agree
7: with you that the disparity in, in, in punishment is quite substantial.
1: Yeah, I think that Congress would have thought it's more serious for somebody to target a bank than it is for somebody to use an altered check that has a risk to a bank. Because, as this case illustrates, using an altered check doesn't necessarily impose a financial cost on the bank. Here, target intercepted most uh, — most, we have a disagreement with the government, whether it was three or four of the checks. But and, — and the bank itself may discover the alteration and refuse to honor the check. But when you are intending to defraud the bank, that's a uh, — Congress could think that's a much more — serious thing. And I do think that, uh,
7: you know, it's— But it it does seem to me that this case can be distinguished from the uh, example you gave uh, in your yellow brief of the person that sells a magazine subscription, and he gets the check, and he never intends to deliver the magazines. In that case, the bank uh, will will honor the check, I assume— Yes. And must, and must do so. That's correct. Um, so, and that's quite different than this case.
1: So the question is how to get rid of those cases while preserving the government's ability to Well, you prosecute. can do
7: so, I suppose, through the government's proposed fallback position yes. uh,
1: at page 40 of its brief, which talks about a risk of loss. So there are, there are several things wrong with the government's fallback position. And it leads, in most cases, to the same result as intended to defraud. So in paradigmatic bank fraud cases, Both our rule and their fallback rule permits prosecution. The only real difference is that their rule is is designed permit prosecution in third-party check fraud cases like ours, because if it's an altered check that's presented to the bank, we acknowledge that shows intent to defraud the bank. So we're only talking about cases like ours where an altered check is presented to a third party. And the government's rule permits them to continue to prosecute those cases. Now, even if you agree with them that those kinds of cases fall within the scope of the statute, that all you need to do then is to say, look, those cases aren't materially different than when you submit the check to the bank in the first place, that the altered check shows intent to defraud the bank in third-party cases just like it does in a first-party case. Now, we think that they're wrong about whether or not these kinds of cases are covered. And if we're right about that, then there's obviously no reason to adopt, you know, a rule that they made up just to deal with those kinds of cases. And maybe I could turn to that argument just for a second. Could I ask you this question? Suppose the defendant
4: testifies and — uh, and suppose the jury believes the defendant. The defendant testifies as follows. I never intended to defraud the bank. I knew that the cashiers at this particular retail establishment were incredibly careful, careless. And so I got these checks, and they were made out to my neighbor John Doe. I stole them from his mailbox. I crossed out his name. I wrote in the name of the retail establishment. And I knew these cashiers were so careless that they would honor the check. However, I never thought any bank would do that, so I didn't intend to defraud the bank. I intended to defraud the retail establishment. Now, under your theory, that that if the jury believed that, the person would not be guilty of the offense.
1: That's right. And I don't think that those cases are covered for an additional reason as well, and that is the fraud there is not intended to obtain bank property. Under Subsection 2, it's not any uh, — fraud that implicates bank property, the object of the fraud must be to obtain property that is owned by or in the custody or control of the, of the bank. And in a case like this, what my client obtained was DVD players and groceries and a printer, and those were not property owned by or in the custody or control of the bank. Well, why doesn't that principle uh, cover most of the cases you're worried about? Well, it doesn't cover the cases uh, — like Rodriguez, because the government can argue there that — so I don't know if i finished the description of Rodriguez, but in that case, a bookkeeper submitted false invoices to her employer. The employer issued valid checks to a third party who then cashed it. And the government can say in a case like that, cashing the check results in you obtaining money in the custody or control of the bank. That's what you get in exchange for the check. And you obtained it by means of a false statement to someone, i.e., the false invoice submitted to the employer. And so it doesn't — adopting our view of what bank property is doesn't completely eliminate the problem. It would — we would win the case, Um, but it doesn't — Why wouldn't your view have enabled you to win this case? It would — it should have. I mean, we've brought a sufficiency of the evidence challenge with respect to whether — whose property this is, Um, and the jury, you know — So if we think that was wrong, there's a lot less to this case than meets the eye. There is. A, that could be the end of this case. It doesn't resolve the circuit conflict, which there's still a circuit conflict about whether intended fraud a bank is required in cases uh, not involving this circumstance of a third party. Um, but we do think that you shouldn't believe that just because if, if you agree with the government that third party alter check cases, fall within the scope of the statute. That's not a reason to forego requiring the government to prove intent to defraud the bank. It's just a reason to say that, as a number of circuits have, uh, that use of that altered check shows intent to defraud a bank. The government has been able to prosecute altered check cases, including altered third party check, — altered check cases to third parties in circuits that require intent to defraud the bank. The other thing that's wrong — But what's the
6: theory behind that? Why would presenting an altered check to a third party — constitute sufficient evidence of intent to defraud a bank?
1: Well, I think that the theory is that the use of an altered check shows intent to deceive the bank. And then these courts simply view uh, obtaining the property uh, of a third party using that check as uh, materially identical to obtaining that property directly from a bank, I think is the theory. But usually there won't be evidence,
4: direct evidence of the defendant's intent. So the defendant's intent will be inferred from uh, objective evidence — will be inferred from other evidence, and uh, then you will get into the question of whether the retailer who initially accepts the check or the bank is ultimately going to be liable for the amount of that check. If you're — if you're in a situation in which the — the retailer is going to be liable that's may- maybe that supports the, the inference that the defendant never intended to defraud the bank. If you're in the situation where the bank is going to be liable, it supports the inference that the defendant intended to defraud the bank. So, won't you get into this somewhat complicated UCC question about who is ultimately going to be liable for the amount? That, I think that's a problem with, what you, with your argument, but maybe there's an answer to it.
1: Well, I, I, I think that there is, and maybe I'm not explaining it very well. So there's two pieces of intent to defraud the bank. There's intent to deceive the bank and intent thereby to obtain bank property. With respect to intent to deceive the bank, I think uh, the, the courts have uniformly found in, in, in cases, at least first-party cases, that use of an altered check. Is sufficient evidence to show that you intend to deceive the bank, and when you intended whether you intend to deceive the bank, is, it doesn't matter who's going to end up bearing the cost at the end. It's just but a that, question. That
5: doesn't doesn't that UCC question arise anyway under the requirement that you have to you have to obtain bank property?
1: It it potentially but, does. But if doesn't you're that willing require to,
5: you to, to ultimately decide who's who's going to be stuck with the with the empty bag?
1: It, it potentially could if you're willing to say that somebody who obtains property from Target potentially is obtaining bank property because of reasons related to the UCC. We don't think you even need to go that far. We think it's sufficient to say that in these third-party cases what you're obtaining is the property of somebody else. And that doesn't mean that it's not a crime. And it doesn't even mean that it's not a federal crime. It simply means it's a Section 513 crime.
5: I understand that. But but if you accept the government's view of of how these third-party cases ought to to be resolved, you, you have to get into the UCC, don't you?
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe they they can — they're the better people to answer that question for you. But I I think that at least — to to finish the answer to Justice Alito, use of an altered check which says when you've written, uh, you know, your name on the check rather than the person who altered it is, is an attempt to deceive a bank. We don't disagree with that. And so then the question in these third-party cases is, are you uh, uh, attempting to obtain property of the bank? And we don't think that the UCC comes into that. It's just a simple common-sense thing that a DVD player on target shelves is not property owned by or in the custody or control of a bank. And so — How does it work? How does it work if you uh,
0: have Mr. Crook? <laughs> Mr. Crook has a bank account in the Bank of America. He has $32 in it. He writes a check for 5000 he sees somebody on the street whom he vaguely knows and says, here, take my check. Go to the bank. And give me $200 or give me $1,000. Now, he's got the money from Mr. Smith. He didn't obtain money from the bank. It was Mr. Smith, who did or did not go into the bank, get the money. Does that fall within the statute? No. I mean, what that is is a typical bad check case. It's, it's so this doesn't fall within the statute at all. Well, if, if, oh. In fact, you, in other words, have we got some cases on that? Uh, we don't have discourse cases. I mean you — know, this is not good, but I mean, you know, what you tried to so, do — you didn't get the money from the bank. What you did was just write a false check, knowing that in all likelihood, the guy you give the check to is going to go right to the bank and get the money. I just wonder, is there some authority as to whether that falls
1: within these statutes or not? the government has brought those kinds of not-sufficient funds cases. Um, Ordinarily, it goes down somewhat differently. It's that you've presented the check that you know is going to bounce to a merchant, not to some guy in the street. And the government's theory is that uh, thereby you're obtaining bank property. Um, But most of the cases say uh, that that's not actually bank fraud because you're not uh, intending to deceive a bank. Um, and that's what wouldn't matter, fine. look,
0: you know, I don't think you have to — when you say intend, intend can encompass a known but undesired or a consequence of an intentional act. And so you may not care. You couldn't care less whether the money comes okay. from the bank or not, but you know that the bank is likely to pay it. Well, but, so but, therefore you have the requisite intent. But what I'm trying to figure out here is what's the case law on what should be a very common situation? The, the, if it, you give it to a third party, your fake check, insufficient funds, you just want the money from the third party. But you know the bank is likely to honor it.
1: Well, if, if I can quibble with that last piece of the sentence, right. ordinarily, if you get a check that goes to a bank and there's not sufficient funds, they bounce the check. They don't honor it. Yes. All right. So try — That's two.
4: certainly been my experience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but All right. try
0: two, two different paths here. Right. Path A — believes that the bank will honor Smith his check when presented by Jones I got my names mixed up Mr. Crook believes that the bank will honor his check when Mr. Smith presents it and the second is the one Justice Scalia said is being sophisticated about these matters Mr. Crook believes that the bank will never own never never pay the check when presented by Smith I just want to know the state
1: of the law on those two situations. So, the state of the law, and there's only a handful of these not sufficient fund cases, is that most of the circuits have said they do not fall within the statute. The ones that have said that they do, it's usually because the defendant has told some additional lie to the bank. They've opened the account under a false name, for example. And so, that's the state of the law. This court in United States versus Williams, though, said we should go to great lengths. What's the
3: thinking of those courts? What's that? What's the thinking of those courts? Uh, What's the rationale?
1: So the rationale is that in a case where you submit — I guess they have two. Some of them are applying the risk of loss uh, test and say that there's not a sufficient risk of loss. I believe some of them are saying that there's no intent to defraud the bank there because the target of the And the courts that
3: don't hold this way but hold as the court did below, that it's an intent to deceive anyone so long as the scheme is a — Yeah, but those — I
1: don't know that — this case has come up in those circuits, but I think the answer is quite clear that those circuits would say they're covered. But in the United States versus Williams, this court said we should go to great lengths to avoid interpreting a federal criminal statute to criminalize federally every insufficient funds check case.
0: Yeah, but we go to, well, to those general statements. You do have the language of the statute. This favors you, this question. But I guess the theory would simply be where Mr. Crook gives him a bad check to Mr. Smith. He couldn't care less whether Smith presents it to the bank, and he, as far as he's fairly sophisticated, thinks probably Smith won't present it to the bank. He may have an insurance company or something, and therefore he did not either obtain or try to obtain or believe he would obtain money from the bank, That's right. whether it's money that the bank itself owns or whether it's money of which the bank has custody. That would seem to be the simplest
1: theory. And I, think, I just wonder is that what courts have said? I think what courts have said is that those kinds of schemes are directed at victimizing the third party, not a bank, and that leaves to the States uh, their traditional authority to prosecute bad check cases, which I don't think should be troublesome. If I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, counsel.
8: Mr. Yang? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Congress drafted Section 1344 with two separate clauses, each of which serves a distinct function. The first clause targets schemes to defraud a bank. That requires intent that the scheme have the purpose of defrauding a bank. It's clause 2, and, and, and this is at page 5A of the government speech. You can see the, the structural difference quite <coughs> cleanly. Clause 2 targets schemes to obtain property that's either owned by— or under the custody or control of a bank, and Congress enacted these broad disjunctive clauses in response to this court's decision in Mays as well as in Williams, which had curtailed the government's ability to
6: prosecute precisely these types of fraud. But Mr. Yang, your interpretation of the statute goes far beyond Mays. Mays was something with a fraudulent credit card or a forged check or something like that. But if I understand your interpretation of the statute. You know, if I sell a painting to somebody and I represent it to be by a famous artist, and, in fact, I've just made it in my kitchen, and that person pays me with a check, and it's a perfectly valid check. It's a good check. The fraud is obviously as to the person who's just bought the painting. It has nothing to do with the bank. But your interpretation would cover that case as well.
8: Uh, that, that is correct. Our
6: understanding
8: of the text And the reason why that is the case is because Congress specified in Clause 2 that the, the scheme to obtain money or property from the bank has to be by means of a false or fraudulent pretense, but it doesn't specify <coughs> to whom that false or pro- fraudulent pretense must be made. Now, we understand that that sweeps in broader than what made — And it's
6: just a little bit peculiar, right? I mean, if somebody pays me in cash, you can't you, the government can't prosecute the person. <laughs> if somebody pulls out a check, the government can. That, that — that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense in terms of what the statute is about.
8: Well, we think that the text suggests that what Congress was doing was enacting a broad prophylactic, because what Congress was addressing, remember, were situations where this Court had construed narrowly um, uh, statutes which addressed situations like this where banks were the inherent second-line victims. But, and so but here, Congress wanted to the avoid the bank uh,
3: is not the victim. That's the whole point in these con artist cases. Uh, no, the no, bank I'm is. Incidental.
8: Th- that's and exactly right. That's why the Congress was not intending specifically to get those, but enacted a broader statute. So we wouldn't have debates about this. Look, look at the debate that we're having in this case. I think everyone can agree that the banks are just like the banks in Mays. They're second-line victims. There is an order to the bank. It's a check. A check is simply an order to the bank to pay a specified Well, I, but in
7: Justice Kagan's hypothetical uh, the bank uh not didn't, didn't have to refund the money that, that, and and if this, this, you know, we could sit around here all day with examples but uh, so suppose you have a, a contractor on a cost plus fixed fee and he inflates the cost uh, this 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 would be uh, to, to the owner uh, this would be a violation of the statute this is a sweeping uh, interpretation you're offering us.
8: We think that that is the interpretation reflected in the text for the following reason. Although it doesn't fall within, fall within the core of what Congress was trying to protect, it avoids the problems, the kind of debate that we're having here we about have... situations that do fall within the core. Because remember, what, now we're, we're talking about petitioners says, well, you know, it wasn't sufficiently targeted. You didn't really victimize or harm the bank. Congress is trying to get away from that type of inquiry. And they said, look, if the scheme has the intent of obtaining property either owned by or in the custody or control of the bank, so that means it can either be controlled by the bank, its own property or custody uh, property it's holding, or it's in the custody or control of others, but it's owned by the bank. Very broad coverage. And you use — you try to obtain those — that property by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, we avoid this kind of discussion about were you sufficiently targeting? Do you really intend to You do indeed,
5: but you extend federal law enormously into the kind of stuff that we've
8: usually left to the states. I'm not sure that that's actually true. It's a very strange federalism argument the petitioner is making. The petitioner is saying, my conduct is federally — a federal crime. It's a federal crime under this. It could be a federal crime under that. It's just not a federal crime under the bank fraud statute. That is a very strange federalism argument, because Congress has already put its hands all over the subject. And what Congress was trying to do here was to respond to cases like May's by enacting a broad statute. Congress I mean, could I have it
0: right. I just want to be sure. My crook case, which you may or may not remember, you're reading the word obtain to mean whoever knowingly executes a scheme or artifice to obtain. It doesn't mean for him to obtain. It means for anybody to obtain. That's how you read it. That's correct. Because and, that, and that has been and that has been uh, pretty much the universal uh, the understanding theory. of
8: obtain. This court. Okay. Okay. United okay. okay, okay. Su- oh, yeah. You don't have
0: to argue that. Right. I just want That's to know. That's just no, a uniform
8: no. understanding with different as well as this fine, court's cases.
0: Fine. Then is the way you see the statute. That's right. That Mr. Crook goes to Mr. Smith and says, "Dear Mr. Smith, here is my check for fifty thousand dollars, knowing he only has three dollars in his account." All right. Now. Case one is Mr. Smith, not too bright, gives him $500. Now, he might, Mr. Crook, think that Smith will then go and present the check to the bank and maybe get some money. In that case, he has violated this, in your view, because Mr. Smith obtained money from the bank, and that was part of Mr. Crook's idea, as what was likely to happen, whether he wanted it to or not. Partially correct. All right. The, I, I would, There's would also call. the Justice Scalia's point, which is a port important, and that, is to me, and that is that. that that there also is the case when Mr. Crook doesn't know how the banking system works at all, and he has no idea that the bank will, in fact, give any money or whether it will give any money. Those are the two cases. I
8: have, I, I have at least two responses. The
0: first needs, is, it doesn't need a response. All I want is explanation. Well, the, ex, two explanations. Give an explanation
5: rather than
8: I will give an explanation <laughs> that will be connected to the question. Um, the. The explanation is, I think, twofold. First, as the Court explained in Nader, Mm -hmm. the gravamen of this statute, just like the gravamen of the mail fraud or the wire fraud, is not the particular acts or that the particular acts are done well or have any likelihood of success. It is the scheme. And so, therefore, questions about reliance—the bank doesn't have to believe it or rely on it. Damages that result don't have to rely. This is a scheme. You, it is criminalizing the scheme to obtain? So, what do you
3: do with the case—the second part of the hypothetical that Justice Breyer didn't repeat, where the person knows the bank is not going to pay a cent because there's no money in this account? I, I think that, and, and so there is no part of the scheme to obtain funds from the bank because. They know the bank won't pay it.
8: Well, they may, they may suspect that the bank may not pay it. Banks sometimes, in fact, do pay checks on insufficient funds. Banks have only 24 hours after receipt of a check to dishonor it or not. And if they don't, then they're stuck in the UCC and have to bring lawsuits. I mean, the, the practical impact of this type of situation is significant, about billion a billion dollars a
0: year. What's the answer to right. Justice Sotomayor's question? Well, it depends Mr. on. Mr. Crook is not too bright. And Mr. Crook doesn't even know what a bank is. And all he knows is he could get $500 from this other not-genius Mr. Smith. And so he does not care about banks. He doesn't know how they work. He, he has no idea if they pay or don't they. What's the result?
8: I think it would be very hard for the government to prove that your inept um, bank thief Had a scheme to obtain money or property from the bank. But the government might be able to prove it circumstantially because, just as Justice Alito explained, you you rarely have insight into the heart of hearts of criminals. You need to have circumstantial evidence. What
3: federal statute criminalizes a con game? Criminalizes
8: what?
5: what? A con
3: con game. A con game. What federal statute? 513 criminalizes altering checks. But what other federal statute makes it a federal crime to um, engage in a con game? Well, uh, Without a check. Well, I'm well, not with sure
8: exactly check. what you mean by a con game, but there are well, of federal says, statutes that address schemes somebody says, I'm going to paint to your
3: house and takes, a, and takes a check for $100 and doesn't paint the house.
8: Well, the answer is that Congress has addressed false statements, schemes to defraud, schemes to detain money or property through all kinds of various um, Air, uh, statutes, mail fraud, wire fraud, false statements, bank fraud. It just has done so in particular areas where there is a Federal interest implicated. And it — actually, those areas are quite sweeping. I mean, bank fraud
5: and map. That would be one of them, if you — if you accept a check, right? If, if you promise to paint the house, you have no intention of doing it, so it's fraud, and, and you accept a check. The and gov- that's it. It's, you're under this statute, right?
8: The government would have to prove that the scheme was intended to obtain money or property from a bank if that was shown and it was shown that And that what does
6: that mean so Mr Yang I mean you could mean that the that the the defendant intends that the money come from the bank or you could mean that the defendant intends to obtain money which he uh, knows may or is reasonably likely to or is foreseeable uh, to come from the bank which do you mean I think we kind of mean both
8: and let me explain why As Justice Alito, I think, has kind of alluded to, as a practical matter, the way you prove these cases is you prove that a, a defendant generally intends the natural consequences of his or her acts. And so if, for instance, you have a case like this where you have a fraudulent check which is directed to a bank, it says, bank, pay the payee this sum of money, that the defendant is going to intend. When they tender that to the to the merchant, that that check is going to be sent to the bank,
6: and that the bank is going to, you know, has a reasonable chance of. Paying. Well, I think this does go back to Justice Alito's question because the person can say the defendant here could have said, "I really don't care whether the bank ends up paying Target. I don't know whether the bank will end up paying Target. I don't know how these things work and how often the bank honors it and how often the bank doesn't honor it. And I really could not care less." As long as I get my money from Target,
8: right? But in in our legal system, I don't think it's. Let me give you another example. Let's say you want to kill somebody and you put a car bomb in their car, right? And there are two people in the car. You see the 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 target going. You see someone else going,
6: and you detonate the bomb. You can't say I was really indifferent about the second person. No, but so you're saying that my person, forget the the other examples. I mean, you're saying that this person who could not care less if the money comes from the bank and actually thinks that the money may not come from the bank, because it's quite likely that the bank's not going to honor this. You think, nonetheless, that that person has intended to obtain bank property?
8: Has? Yes, by the virtue of the scheme. The Wait, scheme I, I, thought,
5: st- I thought you said earlier, and, and I was going to ask you about that, that he does not have to personally receive bank property. Right He just intends that bank property be given to somebody
8: to be transferred right. per his direction. yes yes, that's exactly right
5: and and you
7: you've right. been slipping back into the hypotheticals where the bank is going to bear the loss, but your uh, position also covers instances where the bank does not bear any loss. The fraudulent c- uh, contractor the <laughs> justice Kagan's hypothetical about the phony painting. The bank is not going to give them that money
8: back. And and for good reason, for multiple reasons. One, this is prohibiting the scheme, not a good scheme, not a completed scheme, not an effective scheme. So you have
7: federalized every fraudulent transaction in the economy whenever a check is involved.
8: Not whenever a check is involved. The government would still have to show that the scheme itself was intended to obtain. Money or property from the bank, and did so by well.
7: I, I mean, I can think about it tonight, but I'd like an example of a check where the money doesn't come from a bank.
8: <laughs> well, in the check context, I, I think there is none. I mean, what you have, if you are obtaining that check in order to get the money from or property from the bank, I think it would fall within. And again, we understand this is a broad reading. Can we, we, I, ad-
6: could, could I just that. make sure I, I, I understand your your answer to my question? Suppose that uh, this defendant did not return the merchandise for cash. In other words, suppose he just wanted an Xbox, and he did the exact same thing. So he never himself wanted cash and, uh, again, could not have cared at all whether the bank was going to give the vendor cash. Still, you would say that person intended to obtain bank property.
8: By virtue, yes, we would say that by virtue of yes. the scheme. Remember, he's not just walking in saying, "You know, I'll pay you tomorrow if you give me a hamburger today." Uh, the, he's going in with a check. A check is everyone knows what a check is. It is an order to a bank to pay money. He's giving it to the to the bank. But or he's, to the merchant he's
5: not obtaining the bank's money. You you read to obtain a scheme or artifice to obtain. You read that. FOR ANYBODY TO OBTAIN. I WOULD READ IT TO
8: MEAN FOR HIM TO OBTAIN. BUT THAT'S
5: NOT HOW YOU READ IT. AND YOU SAY THAT'S well, — EVERYBODY READS this, IT
8: THE WAY YOU DO? THIS COURT HAS LONG RECOGNIZED THAT THE WORD OBTAIN NOT ONLY MEANS THAT YOU OBTAIN IT FOR YOURSELF, BUT YOU CAN OBTAIN SOMETHING BY DIRECTING THE TRANSFER OF, of, of PROPERTY TO SOMEONE ELSE. AND THAT'S EXACTLY WHAT A CHECK DOES. MR. You are YANG, BEFORE
2: you, YOU FINISH, MR. RUSSELL POINTED OUT, oh, Lord. AND I THINK JUSTICE SOTOMAYOR, that there is Section 513, it deals with expressly with altered checks, but the penalty is is much, much less. Is everything that is covered by 513 covered by
8: 1344 too? Uh Well, I think the answer is that has not been decided, and let me just explain in in a few ways. One, Section 513 deals with securities, which includes checks of states or organizations. And then it defines organizations. There is a substantial question whether that applies to personal checks. One Court of Appeals has said it has. The Department of Justice's Criminal Resource Manual says it does not apply to personal checks. So there is a, a real question about whether this Section 513 would apply. But even if it were to apply, It applies to protect the integrity of certain writings. It is a different provision than a scheme based provision like Section 1344, which more broadly prohibits types of schemes to obtain money or property from banks.
7: And is it it true that there is a two year mandatory
8: minimum? Not for bank fraud. There is aggravated identity theft for which. Under
7: this statute, is is there a mandatory minimum?
8: No. With this, this statute, the bank fraud statute, has a punishment of up to 30 years to reflect that frauds come in various sizes. It's not a mandatory minimum. It's just a maximum. And in this case, the defendant actually got one year for this bank fraud. He got a, a, a stacked sentence of two years for identity theft, which is separate from this provision. Mr. And Yang,
3: if we are concerned about federalizing every case involving a check Okay. You, your brief does give us an alternative. Yes, My and I, problem is I can't locate that alternative in the language of the statute. Well, I think. So are you asking us just to make it up, or if not, how do we reach it?
8: We're not asking you actually to, to make that interpretation. It would be if the court concludes that our first interpretation is somehow problematic. And we think that that is a superior reading than petitioners for the following reason. Congress addressed
3: No, no, no. Please answer. How do we get to your reading from the text of the statute? I
8: I will. The way you get there is that Congress in Clause 2, again, remember, specifies you have to have intent to obtain money or property from a bank by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises. It does leave silent to whom those false or fraudulent representations must be made. Now, if you look at the legislative history, it's very clear that Congress was at least concerned with situations like Mays, where a bank would be a victim of a fraud. And those — in Mays involved a situation precisely like what we have here, where the reason that the bank um, is a secondary victim is because that false signature, the false charge slip
3: So far I'm with you, but you haven't answered my question. But
8: the way it is — in that context — it, the reason that the bank is the victim of the scheme is because the fraudulent uh, s- method is actually transferred to the bank as an inherent part of the scheme itself. Yeah, and I, so
7: I, — I, I agree that that's that, how I that, think that, that interpretation substantially narrows the, the statute because it's the altered check. The bank is going to be at, certainly at risk of loss. If, if we were to agree with the, that suggestion mm-hmm. and we're inclined to read the statute that way — is there a, a case that you can cite to us that says we have a duty to save poorly drawn statutes by a sensible amendment?
8: No, no, I don't think I mean, we, what,
7: what, what, case do you, what
8: case do you want me to cite if I adopt your alternate—your fallback position? I don't think we are relying on the idea that—what the, that the Court is would be doing is construing the statute in light of presumably some good reason to reject what we think is what the statute normally says. Why don't you try so the rule be, of lenity?
5: Why don't you try the rule of lenity?
8: We think that uh, the rule of lenity doesn't apply for the reasons that we set on our broader argument. If the Court rejects that, that might be a reason. But again, it's construing the term means. Does we the rule
7: of lenity uh, provide a precedent for us to adopt the narrowing interpretation, mm-hmm. your fallback position?
8: I think just in any context where you might have constitutional doubt, the Court sometimes as, you know, construes a statute in a way that it might not otherwise do. And here what we're giving you the hook for this is that the means specified leaves open to whom that false or fraudulent uh, communication must be directed. You could read in light of the history and in light of what Congress's main intent was here, to read the statute as saying, ah, Congress actually, in Clause 2, was concerned with a specific type of means, that is, the means that are directed to the bank. And the reason I think this is far superior than what — what Petitioner suggests is because we are at least construing silence in the statute. Congress specifically addressed intent already in Clause 1, that is, intent to defraud a bank, which is what Petitioner says Clause 2 does. But Clause 2 says there's intent to obtain money or property or from the bank. There's no reason to run over Congress's choice about what types of schemes have to be intended in order to achieve this result. Again, this is our fallback position. If — if, if — if, if we — if we adopt your fallback
5: position, does two do anything that one doesn't do? Uh, I mean if you made if you have made your false or fraudulent uh, uh, representations to the bank, you
8: yeah. surely you intend to cla- defraud the Both, both clauses, of- clauses actually un- under our fallback or our main position cover things that the others will not. And I will give you two examples. On clause one, clause one covers what is called bare check kiting, where you write a check, it has insufficient funds, you withdraw the money, then you write another check to cover it, and another check and you play the float. Nine courts of appeals have addressed this question. All of them have concluded that it falls under Clause 1. Six of them have concluded it doesn't fall under Clause 2. And the additional three courts of appeals that have criminal jurisdiction, in either unpublished or in dictum, have suggested agreement. So it's pretty well established check kiting falls under 1, not 2. On — with respect to 2, it covers schemes like this, where you can argue maybe you didn't intend to defraud the bank itself. But you used false or fraudulent means that would be inherently go to the bank because of the nature of the means themselves. Here, where you direct direct a check, it's a financial instrument. It is ordering a bank to pay money. It goes to the bank, and, and one normally intends the natural consequences of their act. It goes to the bank in the ordinary course.
3: Which part of the statute are you interpreting with this limiting principle the obtain part?
8: The by means of. By means the be- by means of the false or fraudulent pretences and its understanding those false or fraudulent pretenses to be ones which are directed to the bank as an inherent consequence of the scheme itself,
6: Mr. Mr. Yang, your first order argument, which is you know the natural way one would read a statute that says one or two, is to interpret it as meaning two different things, yes. but that requires us to read it. Uh, differently from the way we read the exact same words without the numbers, but the exact same words in McNally. And we know that Congress wanted the bank fraud statute to mirror the mail-and-wire fraud statutes. So we end up with this, um, you know, if we we go with uh, your friend over there, we read a statute in a way we wouldn't normally— But if we go with you, we have to read these two statutes that say the same thing and that we know Congress meant to say the same thing differently.
8: Right. And I think that there are very sound reasons for doing that. And I'll explain why. First, when you look at the statute, Section 1344, this is on page 5A, and and the bank fraud or the mail fraud statute is on 1341 and 2A, they're quite different. I mean, even when we just look at the statutory structure alone. Congress broke these clauses up, put them on different lines, numbered them, indented them equally, one would not naturally say, you have the option of, one, option A, yeah, so or take, two, I take your
6: point B. that the, the words on the page look very good for you. But we also know that Congress didn't intend for those differences in spacing and numerology to have a difference in meaning, don't we? No,
8: no. Congress modeled — it's certainly true that Congress modeled the bank fraud statute on the mail fraud statute, but that doesn't mean Congress wanted the two statutes to be coterminous. In fact, Congress not only expressed its understanding that these were disjunctive for the various structural reasons, which I think are inescapable from the text, but also Congress modified the text itself. Congress didn't simply say a scheme to defraud. It requires a scheme to defraud a financial institution. Congress did not say a scheme to obtain monetary property. It, obta- it specified that it's not only property of the bank, owned by the bank, it is property under the bank's custody that the bank doesn't own. And bank pro- property that the bank owns, but it's not even under its custody or control, it's under the custody or control of others. This is a different statute, of course, modeled on the mail fraud statute, but it's different. And Congress, I don't think in 1984, could have been more clear about its intent to make these two provisions, that is, the intent to defraud and the intent to obtain provisions, distinct based on the choices that it made in text. It's just, I think, impossible to read the text and come away with the conclusion that in 1984 what Congress intended, regardless of what happened in the mail fraud statute in 1987, that Congress intended that or notwithstanding the only reading of or in this context that makes any textual sense, it's not even defended, it's a textual argument on the other side, that Congress meant that or in that structure to mean anything but or. That is a disjunctive with two separate clauses having independent meaning. And in fact, it would be anomalous to, to do so because section two covers, for instance, bank-owned property that's not under the custody of the control of the bank. So why would you intend to defraud the bank when you're trying to really get it from the custodian of the bank's property? The idea would be that the means obtained, at the very least, would probably be directed to the custodian of the property, not, which is not always the bank under Clause 2. Um, is,
2: is the government still taking the position that it took in the District Court that 1344-1 also covers this case?
8: Uh, well, we disagree with the um, Court of Appeals precedent, which says you need a risk of loss under Clause 1. Um, but the government acquiesced to the district court's narrowing of this to Clause 2. Well, uh, along those
4: lines, if we were to agree uh, that under Sub 2 it was necessary to show an intent to defraud the bank, what would the government have to prove in an altered check case?
8: Well, I guess, or what would you have had
4: to prove under sub one if you can, pro- if this case could properly be prosecuted under sub one?
8: Well, you'd have to show that the scheme was actually intended to obtain uh, to deceive the bank as well as obtain its property, as opposed to a in, in that intent difference. It can be significant in cases. W- what we'll have to have shown here well, — But how,
6: how can that intense difference be significant? I mean, I would have thought that you would have said the same proof that goes to whether you intend to obtain bank property, even though you're presenting this check only to a third party, and the check may or may not be — honored by the bank, that you could say the exact same thing about whether you intend to defraud the bank.
8: We certainly would probably rely on the same types of evidence. We would then have the additional burden of having to show that the intent was to deceive the bank specifically. what
4: What I'm getting at is, would this require delving into the defendant's knowledge of the legal relationship between the merchant here and — and the bank.
8: I think it inevitably is going to come to that, and you're going to throw to juries these questions of, like, you know, despite the fact that the the defendant has used a check, did the defendant really know what a check was, or did the defendant — what is the check But why
6: isn't that the same under the intent to obtain bank property, where you also, the defendant, might say, no, I really didn't intend to obtain property because I didn't really know whether the bank would honor the check, and, in fact, I thought it wouldn't.
8: Well, the scheme would be to obtain. You don't have to necessarily show that the specific means that you were using were intended to deceive the bank, because that requires a lot but more it's a, But even
6: on, on the obtained property wing, it's obtained property from the bank, isn't it?
8: Uh, not obtained property from the bank. It is obtained property— Well, in the custody it. of the bank. It doesn't have to be in the custody of the bank. It can be bank-owned property in the custody of others. So, for instance, banks have a lot of assets. For instance, they can foreclose on houses and such. In those contexts, you might have uh, someone who is scheming to obtain bank property by directing their fraud to a third party to whom the bank has entrusted their… No, assets. but in a
6: case like this, wouldn't the difficulties of proof be the same? The person, whether, whether uh, you uh, charge somebody with uh, trying to defraud the bank or with trying to obtain property owned by or in the custody of the bank, uh, if, if Justice Alito was right as to the one that all these questions about the relationship between a bank and a retailer are, c- are going to come in, isn't he also right as to the other?
8: I, I'm not quite I, — I don't think that's quite right. And the reason is that whenever you have to show an additional intent requirement, it — ups the ante. Just like in homicide, you have various gradations of a homicide, including a murder. When you well, that have doesn't an the
4: answer depend on from whom they, for whom the, the money, uh, either owned or under in the custody of the bank, has to be obtained? If it, if it doesn't have to be obtained by the defendant, then it wouldn't seem to me that there would be much of a question, because even if uh, <clears throat> the only thing that the defendant obtains from the merchant is uh, an, an Xbox. Uh, if, the, if the check is honored, it is going to be obtained by the merchant. So somebody is going to be obtaining money from the bank if the check is ultimately honored.
8: May I, may I just — I would just qualify that by saying that the defendant is obtaining the money. It's obtaining it through the check to be paid to the merchant. That's — Right. The ultimate-
5: no, Excuse me. You, you have to posit his expectation that the check will be honored,
8: don't you? It has to, the scheme has to contemplate that.
5: Exactly. And, and if it's a scheme that, uh, that's making alterations that no reasonable person would expect the bank to honor, it seems to me you're out of luck.
8: Well, I don't, if I might respond, Mr. Chief sure. Justice, the, I don't think that actually plays out in fact. Banks suffer about a billion dollars in check fraud a year. There are ten billion dollars that banks put into check fraud pre- prevention. There are so many checks that fly through, including the checks here. If you look at the checks here, the ones that he got caught for, not the ones that he might have washed and dried, weren't artfully done. But some still go through, and the transaction costs that it, it imposes on the financial system is something that Congress could have been concerned with. In fact, we think it was.
1: Thank you, counsel. Uh, five
0: minutes, Mr. Russell.
1: Thank you. Congress was concerned about the, the risks to banks of altered checks, but it dealt with that in Section 5.13, not Section uh, 13.44. Yeah, I said it so wasn't, your...
2: wasn't, the scope of 5.13 wasn't clear.
1: I don't th- think that that's correct. I mean, we cited a case in our brief in which the government actually succeeded in prosecuting someone for an altered check under Section 5.13. I don't understand the argument that checks aren't encompassed within 5.13. We've reproduced the language at 10A of the blue brief. Uh, and what it says is it, it criminalizes the use of a forged security, and it defines forged to mean altered, it defines security to mean check, and then it has to be a forged security of an organization, and it defines organization to mean any legal entity other than a government established or organized for any purpose and includes any corporation, company, association, firm, etc. I just don't understand what the argument is that Section 513 doesn't cover uh, some species of altered checks. But at the very least, if if you thought that Congress must have intended to federally criminalize use of all altered checks, it's an easier interpretation to say that 513 covers it than the bank fraud statute. The government's argument here today makes utterly clear how broad the federal bank fraud statute will be if you adopt their interpretation. It encompasses the the fake renoir example and and all of the ones in our briefs, and it includes every uh, not-sufficient-funds case. Uh, and, and the government acknowledges Could
3: you please tell me why what your objections are to the by means of limiting principle the government gives as an alternative
1: so there 's several objections. One is the one that you raised. there 's no basis for it in the text. It is a limitation on what the, the statute says. Any false representation, and they say no, only those false representations that would foreseeably go to a bank and might uh, fool it into paying a check <laughs> second it doesn't do any uh, useful work, because all it does is that the only difference between their fallback position and intent to defraud a bank is, is two things. One is that it permits them to, to bring cases in these third-party altered check cases, and we've argued we don't think that those fall under the statute anyway. But even if you think that they do, the much easier thing to say is they fall under the statute, intent to require you no know, defraud a bank is required, but the use of the altered check is sufficient evidence. Well, the government. I think it does a
7: lot of work because it, uh, it takes out of the equation uh, uh, s- s- schemes to defraud where the bank is not going to be
1: liable. Right. I'm, I'm saying it doesn't do any work that intent to defraud a bank doesn't already do. So if you're choosing between our test and their test, both tests allow prosecutions of paradigmatic fraud cases. Both cases — both tests eliminate uh, the Renoir example, um, but their test permits The the only difference, practical difference, is their case facilitates prosecution in these third-party cases that we don't think are covered by the statute anyway, but even if there are, you don't have to adopt this extra-textual interpretation. And I don't
3: understand how, um, if the list is made to Target, who gives the person the DVD off the shelf, how you prove that that's an intent to defraud the bank as opposed to defraud Target? Well, so, there's the, so what's the, the charge you give to the jury to get to that? I think you say the, that the principle is the charge that they want to get.
1: You say that they have to show that uh, the defendant intended to deceive a bank, and the government can argue, and the government has successfully argued in many cases that use of an altered check shows that the defendant intended to deceive a bank, and the government raised. You know, the government never likes to have to prove intent. But the government raises these theoretical difficulties in proving intent, but it hasn't shown that this actually ever arises. In fact, the government routinely convicts people in circumstances like this case, even in circuits where intent to defraud a bank is required. It's just they didn't try to do that here, because they didn't ask the jury to make that finding. In addition, Um, the the difficulty of their test is it's just plain strange. They they say you should adopt their test because Congress didn't care about intent to defraud a bank. Then they adopt a rule that looks very much like the kind of rule you would adopt if you thought Congress cared about intent to defraud a bank. It's simply substituting some circumstantial uh, evidence that one could argue to a jury shows intent to defraud a bank and saying that's all the government has to prove. Your textual hierarchy is that that the representation has to be made to the bank,
4: right? That's the only way you can get this within the statute. That's correct. But that's different from an intent
1: to defraud the bank, isn't it? I think, well, that's the first half. So there's two pieces, intent to deceive the bank, intent to obtain bank property. We say that you can read the statute to require intent to deceive the bank because there's a statutory silence, and then the government has to prove intent to obtain bank property. That's easily proven when the check is directly presented to a bank. We don't think it can be proven in a case like this because our client intended to obtain Target's property, not the bank's. Well, where's the textual silence about intent? Where, where do you get intent to deceive the bank into
4: this? I think that's what — I get it from this Court's decision, for example, in McNally, where it says. Where do you get it from the text, I understand the argument, it's a, it, it 's a, a very credible argument. It doesn't right. say to whom the representations have to be made, uh, so you, you put in to the bank right. i don 't see how you get from there to uh, defrauding the bank.
1: So if you read it to mean that you have to uh, direct the false statement to the bank, that is the first half of what McNally said in, in, uh, intended to the bank or intended to defraud a bank is you have to intend to deceive a bank, and the second half is you have to get at intended the deceit to obtain bank property, which is on the face of subsection 2. Thank you, counsel. Case is submitted.